name is Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we are the Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome to another Haunted Happy Hour. And in this Haunted Happy Hour, it's not really haunted. It's more just so like sexist, misogynistic, <laughs> sad. Yeah, this is more like an oddest episode. <laughs> right, right. This is like one of those things where I feel like we're talking about how sad it was to be a woman. And then there will be one of those guys that it's like, okay, but they did kill some men. Yeah, okay, Jared. Like... <laughs> Two percent, okay, of the total right. amount of people that died were men, okay. But I'll yeah. give I'll give you your two percent. And how many women have been raped and beaten to death throughout the years? Come on. So we're talking about witches, <laughs> <laughs> and witchcraft is a very alive and well practice. So I'm not really going to talk about witchcraft as it exists today because that is a practice that I don't know a lot about, and I don't want to step on anyone's religion. So mm-hmm. more so going to talk about history and history's view on witchcraft, which we all know is not the best. And it's all rooted in like religious hysteria, you know? Yes. Always. Isn't everything? Yes. We're heading that way again, man. Even sex. Religious hysteria. Mm-hmm. Yep. But again, we have another a whole other podcast for that, right? So <laughs> a lot of these. So I'm going to tar- start off by just talking about like what witchcraft like the first time we see witchcraft talked about in literature it's the bible (laughs) fun fact (laughs) no way right no and talk about some witches throughout history but the thing is like when you look up witches throughout history I was really looking into like there are some that were like started a practice or is still worshipped or still thought of as a deity but most of them Actually, we're probably just women that were coerced into confessing. Absolutely. It's that whole torture doesn't actually provide confessions. It just causes people to confess to make the torture stop. Yeah, they would rather be dead than continue what they're going through. So we will be talking about torture and then death. And so there will be a trigger warning for that. So if that's not something you're comfortable with, you know, leave. So witchcraft may be a little bit of a misnomer here because, you know, we're we're mostly talking about these poor women that were killed unjustly, I guess. But it is about witchcraft because, you know, it's very interesting the things that when you think about the things that they thought were witchcraft, they they just kind of made up because they didn't know any better. And because, you know, diocese and things like that just kind of were like, mm, I don't like you. Right, exactly. Or, you know, them coming up with witches marks, you know, it could just be a mole or anything. Yeah, there was one that I was reading about where it would just shave them like completely like every single hair from their body to look for basically these witches marks. And if they found like a birthmark or something, they would just be like, oh, that's it. Mm hmm. Which everyone has something. Right. Come on. We saw that in God. What movie was it where we watched The Reckoning? The Reckoning. Yeah. Man. Such a good movie. It was good, but I've been watching so many movies, I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah. But it was good. It was basically that. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to talk about that, but I am going to start it off with a little, well, all of this is history, but specifically just the history of where we see witchcraft for the first time. So it's unclear exactly when witches came on the historical scene, but one of the earliest records of a witch is in the Bible. And the book of First Samuel thought to be written between 931 BC and 721 BC. It tells the story of when King Saul sought the witch of Endor to summon the dead prophet Samuel's spirit to help him defeat the Philistine army. And when I was actually looking up witches, 
the witch of Endor did come up. So this is basically her story. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. The witch roused Samuel, who then prophesied the death of Saul and his sons. The next day, according to the Bible, Saul's sons died in battle and Saul committed suicide. Other Old Testament verses condemn witches, such as the often cited Exodus twenty two eighteen, and we've seen this in movies before, which says, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's like the, you know, rallying cry for all religious people. Right. Exactly. Additional biblical passages caution against divination, chanting, or using witches to contact the dead, which the chanting thing is so funny because if you've ever been to a church service, you say the same things and sing the same songs. Is that not chanting? Correct. (laughs) I don't, I guess I don't know back in biblical times, but in the middle ages, they had Gregorian chanters. Come on. Right. It just depends on like what... If you're not doing it the right way. Exactly. If you're not liked, if you're a woman who speaks her mind, don't ever do that. Right. Singing the wrong song? Dead. Exactly. Witch hysteria really took hold in Europe during the mid-1400s when many accused witches confessed, often under torture, duress, to a variety of wicked behaviors. Within a century, witch hunts were common and most of the accused were executed by burning at the stake or by hanging. Single women, widows, and other women on the margins of society were especially targeted. So if you didn't have a husband, you got to go, man. If you weren't breedable, got to go, dude. Like, right. Between the years of 1500 and 1660, up to 80,000 suspected witches were put to death in Europe. Around 80% of them were women thought to be in cahoots with the devil and filled with lust. Germany had the highest witchcraft execution rate, while Ireland had the lowest. Men are so fragile. Yes. There was actually a publication written in Germany in like 1486, and it was a book translated as The Hammer of Witches, and it was essentially a guide on how to identify, hunt, and interrogate witches. It labeled witchcraft as heresy and quickly became the authority for Protestants and Catholics trying to flush out witches living among them. For more than 100 years, the book sold more copies than any other book in Europe except for the Bible. So it was like you buy the Bible and then you also buy How to Hunt Witches 101. Oh, my God. Which is like it makes sense when you think about it why so many people died, you know? Yeah. Because they would just go hand in hand. And then... It causes this paranoia. So, like, if you're fine with Sarah next door and then you buy a guide to hunt witches, she all of a sudden turns into a witch, you know? Yeah, she looks terrifying. Oh, my God, she does live alone. (gasps) I have seen that mole on her nose. Yeah, you just get paranoid about everything. As witch hysteria decreased in Europe, it grew in the New World, which was reeling from wars between French and British, a smallpox epidemic, and ongoing fear of attacks from neighboring native american tribes the tense atmosphere was ripe for finding scapegoats probably the best known witch trials took place in salem massachusetts in 1692 so this is coming out after thanksgiving but i wanted to share because amanda just made me think of it i just want to let people know if anybody doesn't where thanksgiving actually came from abraham lincoln obviously later on used it as a rallying cry for our country to come together and thanks i get that where it originally started was back in, you know, the 1700s, Puritan times. And basically what happened was they were having a feast and a bunch of people were murdered 
and they blamed the local Indian tribe and then they massacred them. So I just like people to know that that's part of why, like I celebrate Thanksgiving just because I like to eat turkey with my family. I do not celebrate Thanksgiving as an actual holiday because it's really fucked up. Yeah, we need to like retake that and like rebrand it or give it back to the natives or something. Mm-hmm. Like it is very fucked up. It's not this feast where the Puritans and the fucking like pilgrims or whatever sat down with the natives and they no. all broke bread together. It was a fucking massacre. Yes, exactly. And then the poor little local tribe was blamed for it. So then they went and killed them. Fucked up. No. Right. And I think that's getting more attention now because people don't want to be as blind into it. Like in previous generations, yeah. they didn't want to know that stuff. And you right. you can see that now. Like when we talk about that kind of thing, like, okay, your local news station posts a fucking article about anything having to do with, it doesn't even have to do with race. They post a picture of a person of color and somebody fucking racist is in the comments yeah, making it like. You know what I mean? So -hmm. they didn't want to pay attention to that kind of shit, you know, because they can't take any accountability. And I'm not, I'm not saying they need to take accountability from, well, they do, but like, you know, from 1400 or whatever, you need to take accountability for what's happening now. Exactly. Which is why, you know, I still, I'll celebrate it to hang out with my family because, you know, it's been a while, but at the same time it started out fucked up. Right. And you need to acknowledge that like you're on stolen land mm-hmm. and we need to do better about giving that some of that like back absolutely yes so you know i like my i just wanted to share that since it was right for thanksgiving right and we're talking about massachusetts which <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah. and we kind of all know about the salem witch trials which there's actually a lot of misinformation around that as well so mm-hmm. you know but the salem witch trials began when nine-year-old elizabeth paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams began suffering from fits, body contortions, and uncontrolled screaming. Today, it is believed that they were poisoned by a fungus that caused spasms and delusions. As more young women began to exhibit symptoms, mass hysteria ensued, and three women were accused of witchcraft. Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba, an enslaved woman owned by Paris's father. Tituba confessed to being a witch and began accusing others of using black magic. Which... On June 10th, Bridget Bishop became the first accused witch to be put to death during the Salem witch trials when she was hanged at the Salem gallows. Ultimately, around 150 people were accused and 18 were put to death. Women weren't the only victims of the Salem witch trials. Six men were also convicted and executed. So Mm -hmm. just to give you a little background, there's definitely more, you know, hysteria in Europe, but we still have like, okay. If any of you are alt out there, there is a just a, it's a fucking clothing brand and it's an alternative clothing brand. It's called Blackcraft Cult. I wore a goddamn pair of sweatpants that said Blackcraft Cult on it. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, my fucking God. Oh, my God. It's just words. But they're just. Yeah, I'm not. And even if I oh, was. Man. Yeah. Your sky daddy's not real either. Okay. <laughs> so uh, calm down. Just because I sacrifice goats. No, I don't. I just, I'm joking. Yeah. No, it's tofu. We sacrifice tofu in this house. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was super interesting. I like that. Like, obviously, yeah. m- most of my family is from Boston. So I've done the whole, like, the Salem Witch Museum and stuff like that. So I not, know a lot about that part. But I didn't, I don't know so much about, like, the Europe part of it. Which is where, like, I think all of, I don't think any of 
anybody I'm talking about is actually from the United States. So that'll be Mm -hmm. interesting. All right. The first one that I have is Mother Shipton. When so many myths are built around a person, what does it say about that person? For Ursula Sothil, better known as Mother Shipton, perhaps the added mystery, however fictitious, is a testament to her enduring reputation. Mother Shipton was a feared and highly regarded English prophetess from the 16th century. Born to a mother who was also suspected to be a witch, Mother Shipton was described as hideously ugly and disfigured, so much so that the locals called her Hagface and believed her father to be the devil. Despite her unfortunate appearance, she was said to have been England's greatest clairvoyant and was often compared to her male contemporary, Nostradamus. According to legend, she had predicted the Spanish Armada, the Great Plague of London, the Great Fire of London, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, and some even speculate the internet, of which she said, Around the world thought shall fly in the twinkling of an eye. Thankfully for her sake, Mother Shipton did not die by the sword like so many accused witches before and after her. Instead, she died a normal death and is said to have been buried on unholy ground on the outer edges of York around 1561. So that ended nicely. Okay. They thought she was... That, I, that's just so interesting to me. If it benefits people and they're interested enough, they'll keep someone alive. Even if they think that she might be the spawn of fucking Satan. Correct. You know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, Nostradamus, like I get he was a man, but he's still like, he seems like a witch, but they, they were fine with him. Yeah. It's just because it was interesting. And, and, you know, if she predicted something and then something similar may have happened, it's like, oh shit, keep, her, keep her around, you know? Right. Exactly. So yeah, no, that's just really interesting because you don't see that very often. Like people do much less and get much worse absolutely they do like i mean the salem witch trials we were just talking about you know she made me dance with the devil like that's it and then everyone's just dying (laughs) okay right you got drunk and you blamed it on someone else you know right exactly because you're embarrassed right get over it jesus so this poor woman her name is alice kuteller in 1324 Okay, also, when you think about I know that I'm just going off the rails on this one. So it's so interesting to me when I read things and our record keeping was still like was good in like the 1300. Well, like, you know, decent enough to where we can still look back on these things and have publications mm-hmm. in the 1300s. Yes. Well, you also have to think of back then the publications were basically just the clergy still. So it makes sense on why we have some witch stuff when they didn't like that. Well, that's funny because this first sentence here, in 1324, Richard Ladred, Bishop of Ossori, declared that his diocese was a hotbed of devil worshippers. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. He's like, no, we got to get these fucking people out of here. Well, and that's what he did. The central figure in his affair was this poor woman named Alice. She was a wealthy Kilkenny woman who stood accused of witchcraft by her stepchildren. Like, hmm. It was the first witchcraft trial. Sounds about right. Yeah, right. (laughs) They wanted the money. (laughs) It was the first witchcraft trial to treat the accused as heretics and the first to accuse, get this, the first to accuse a woman of having acquired the power of sorcery through sexual intercourse with a demon. Features which later became common in the famous witchcraft trials of the 16th and 17th centuries. 
It was also the occasion for a major confrontation between secular and ecclesiastical authority. In theory, the state claimed control over the material life of its subjects and the church over the spiritual life. While the principle of separation was acknowledged by both parties, the dividing line was often disputed as jealousy and zealousy guarded their own rights in their separate law courts. Well, you know, religion's going to probably win here, but, you know. Right. We're going to find yeah. out. <laughs> so, again, her name is Alice Keteller. The Keetellers were part, or excuse me, the Keetellers were a family of Flemish merchants who had settled in Kilkenny, probably in the area known as Flemingstown. Flemingstown? I don't know. I'm not from the UK, all right? Sometime <laughs> during the mid-13th century. In 1280, Alice married William Outlaw, a wealthy Kilkenny merchant and moneylender, by whom she had a son, also called William, subsequently her chief business partner. Wives and mothers of medieval merchants frequently participated in the family business. He was declared an adult in 1303, her son, remember, and was at one point the sovereign or mayor of Kilkenny. By 1302, Alice was already married to her second husband, Adam LeBlond of Collin, another moneylender. Alice and Adam were evidently prosperous. In 1303, William Outlaw declared he was guarding 3,000 pounds of their money, an indication of the measure of medieval trade in Kilkenny and the highly profitable nature of money lending. So basically, this this is a whole long-winded thing, but she married a shit ton of people. Okay? <laughs> okay. All right. And her son, William, benefited financially from some of these marriages. And sometime before 1360, Another one of her husbands died, and Alice took legal proceedings against her stepson, so one of these other husband's kids, for withholding her widow's dower. By 1324, when she was accused of witchcraft, Alice had acquired a fourth husband, a knight. Sir, this does not sound like she's a witch. It definitely sounds like she's a serial killer. Like, we've heard this story of women just poisoning their families. Gold digger! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And her fourth husband was a knight, Sir John Lepore. So, jealous stepchildren. The wealth that Alice had accumulated at the expense of her stepchildren had them angry and suspicious. They came to the conclusion that she was practicing witchcraft. Of course. Because there could be no other explanation for any of this, right? Exactly. And accused her to the ecclesiastical authorities of witchcraft. A fairly commonplace accusation and one usually treated by English law as a petty criminal offense, which is very interesting. But like, you know, that is. it's like English law, not religious law. Right. Witchcraft was a form of magic and magic had always existed in one form or another, which is also really interesting. Like what makes witchcraft so bad and like what other ever kind of magic good? I guess mm -hmm. because all religion is magic, but you know. Popular medicine was often based on herbal preparations made by good witches. Ah, there it is. Hmm. So if it's helping you, it's fine. The idea of witchcraft I mean, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. The idea of witchcraft as an inversion of Christianity, however, came to the fore in an the 11th or 12th century in the latter part of the 13th century, the church began to view witchcraft as heresy as devil worship rather than the performance of a magical ritual In 1258 Pope Alexander VI legislated in favor of the inquisitional prosecution for sorcery on the grounds that it savored of heresy. Of course he did fucking Pope. <laughs> so the stepchildren brought their complaint of witchcraft to the Bishop, a particularly single-minded churchmen anxious to defend the liberties and jurisdictions of the church 
So basically what I'm, I haven't, you know, finished this yet, but that tells me that some religious leader was like, Ooh, I'm going to set a precedent, you know? Exactly. He's yeah. He's going to make her pay for everyone that they missed out on. Yep. Since his arrival in Ireland in 1317 as a, as an appointee, he had demonstrated a zeal for reform and strict adherence to the laws of the church. He clashed with local Anglo-Irish and complained directly to the Pope. So, you know, he had a lively fear of sorcery and claimed that his life was in danger from witchcraft, which he listed as heresy in his, you know, basically his entire life was against all of this stuff. So seven charges were brought against Alice and her associates that they were denying Christ in the church. Boy, if that was a charge now, we would all be going up in flame. Let me tell you (laughs) that they cut up living animals and scattered the pieces at crossroads as offerings to a demon called the son of art in return for his help. That they stole the keys of the church and held meetings there at night. That in the skull of a robber, they placed the intestines and internal organs of worms, nails cut from dead bodies penises, hairs from the butts and clothes of boys who had died before being baptized. Jesus fucking Christ. What the hell? That from this brew, they made potions to incite people to love, hate, kill, and afflict Christians. Okay, really quickly, that doesn't even sound like that sentence right there, that far off from today's far right like persecution complex that they have. Correct. Yep, it's just going to happen again. It all comes full circle. Just because they're saying, like, they made a potion. But the thing is, like, I'm on TikTok a lot, and there are people that being like, witches are putting spells on our churches. Like, they still fucking think that. Oh, my God. There was this woman that went viral on TikTok because she was talking about this family that came into her church that no one knew. Like, aren't you supposed to be inviting? And they gave them candy and the Lord told them not to eat that candy because the witch had put a spell on it to hurt their family. And she was fucking serious. Yeah. Anyways, that Alice herself had a certain demon as incubus by whom she permitted herself to be known carnally and that he appeared to her either as a cat, a shaggy black dog, or as a black man. From who? Yeah. From who she received her wealth and that Alice had used sorcery to murder some of her husbands and to infatuate others with the result that they gave all of their possessions to her and her son, William, thus impoverishing her stepchildren. Furthermore, they claimed that Alice's fourth husband, Sir John Lepore, was being poisoned. A description of him in 1324 as emaciated with nails torn out of his body and all the hair removed, all consistent with arsenic poisoning, lends credence to the latter accusation. So they went through legal proceedings. So Alice actually, like, she did fight this for a long time. This got held up in the courts because, of, like I mentioned, like, the church versus the common law. And then, you know, and then she was going after all of her stepchildren back. So, like, she retaliated and accused them of defamation of character, claiming that, with you know, that they were basically coming after her just because they were poor. <laughs> and she appealed to the Dublin court. And then they, you know, summoned the bishop to appear before them. So this is actually interesting because this didn't happen very often. If you were accused of witchcraft, very often that was it. You were already condemned. Right. But she actually, and it was, I'm not going to say this for sure. It was likely also because her son was involved. And so she did have that kind of, and also her 
husband was a knight. So, you know, she kind of did. And she was also very wealthy. So she did kind of have a little bit of a boost there, you know? Yeah, definitely. So she had that going for her. But she was burnt at the stake. Aw, even with all that going for her. Yep. The use of torture to extract confessions was legal, which is what they did. So. And she was the only one that ever suffered. So. Yep. Of course. Her son went to prison, but, like, she was burned at the stake. Damn. Yep. Agnes Sampson. It was the perfect storm to kill witches, and that included Agnes Sampson, a Scottish midwife and healer. In early 1590, King James IV of Scotland married Anne of Denmark and Norway, who, along with her court, had been fearful and bewildered by the subject of dark magic. The queen's fears got the better of her new king, and after the two experienced dangerously treacherous storms en route to sailing back to Scotland, James launched a campaign against witches. Why? Because he came to the conclusion that witches had cast a spell on Mother Nature and started the horrendous storm. Of the 70 people accused of being witches in the North Berwick area between 1590 and 1592, Agnes Sampson was one of them, thanks to another accused witch, Gellis Duncan. The confessions were brought on by torture, and the questioning oftentimes came from the king himself. But legend has it that Agnes doggedly denied the charges against her among them that she had attended a witch's coven on Halloween night to help create the infamous storm that plagued the king and queen's voyage. Unfortunately, however, the torture was too much for her to take and it broke her spirit. Sleep-deprived and exhausted by being bound on a witch's bridle, an instrument that was inserted four prongs in the mouth and was attached to a wall, she confessed to being allies with Satan and conspiring to kill the king. She was strangled and burned to death. Too bad he didn't fucking drown. Yeah. Fucking deserved it. So did that wife of yours, sir. Right? God. I don't... Like... I'm not saying... Like, people were just as... I will stand by this too. People were just as smart then as they were now. We just know more now. Mm-hmm. How do you not realize, even without science, how do you not realize that torturing people is going to get them to tell you whatever you want to make it stop? Correct. Exactly. Like, that's whack. All right. The next one I have is Isabel Gowdy. Very little is known about Isabel Gowdy. She was married to John Gilbert, who had no involvement with the witchcraft case that she was involved in. It seems likely that she was brought up in the old. Ooh, that looks like Alderaan, but I know it's not Alderaan. <laughs> Alderaan area, as she extensively mentions many of the nearby villages, hamlets, and firm tunes during her confession. Don't know what her age was, but as the legal age for marriage in Scotland at the time was 15, we can assume, you know, she had to be older than that. It should be noted that the average age for getting married in Scotland during this time period was 26 or 27, which actually, you know, that's that surprises that's me. That's pretty high. Yeah. yeah. I mean... You know, they usually, like, you know, maybe 17, 16, 17, you know? Mm-hmm. During her confession, she alluded to have engaged in sexual practices some 15 years earlier, placing her somewhere between 30 to 35 years of age. There's no record of her having any children, and there are no surviving records from the time that she made reference to children in any of her confessions. Isabel Gowdy and her husband lived in Lochloy, some two miles north of Aldearn. 
It seems likely that Isabel's husband was a farm laborer, perhaps a cotter hired by one of the tenant farmers. It is likely she lived her life in a turf house and spent her days milking, baking bread, weeding, and perhaps spinning yarn. Records indicate that the Laird of Parks tenants grew flax for linen products. It seems probable that Isabel Gowdy had little or no education. However, despite being unable to read or write, Isabel possessed a good imagination and could, could express herself eloquently. Perhaps the thing which set Isabel apart from the other witch trials of the time is the sheer volume of her confession. The outcome of Isabel Gowdy's confessions are unknown, and she slipped into obscurity for nearly 200 years until her confessions were published in 1833 in Robert Pickern's Ancient Criminal Trials in Scotland. Although the confessions quickly became celebrated, the original documents went missing. They were only recovered two centuries later when they were found in an uncatalogued box of papers once belonging to Isabel's landlord, the Laird of Park, in the National Archives of Scotland. So these were lost, and then they just found them in some random dude's box. Interesting. Isn't that, like, crazy? The papers reveal that Isabel Gowdy made a series of four confessions over a six-week period, the first being the 13th of April, 1662. In keeping with the time, Isabel would have been kept in solitary confinement, probably in Tolbooth in Aldearn, where she was likely beaten and deprived of sleep. Meanwhile, her co-accused, Janet Breadhead. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think it's Breadhead, but it's spelled B-R-E-A-D-H-E-A-D, so... How did you know my surname? That's Breadhead. <laughs> was held in a castle, the seat of the Laird of Park. During the course of her imprisonment, she was interrogated by local ministers, Harry Forbes and Hugh Rose, in the presence of at least a dozen witnesses, including a public notary, John Innes. Her testimony bears the heavy imprint of a prosecutional mind. Anxious to convict the prosecutors, the prosecutors clearly had preconceptions about the crimes which had supposedly committed, and her confession was clearly led with, when did you make a pact with the devil? And when did you fly to the witch's Sabbath? Type questions. Isabel Gowdy's first confession begins with the assertion that the said Isabel Gowdy, appearing penitent for, this is written in Old English, so give me a second, Appearing penitent for her haynows, which means heinous, sins, which actually says signs, but sins of witchcraft, and that she had been hour long in that service without any, comp wow, compulsatories, <laughs> compulsatories, prostitute, okay, I don't know what that word is, and her confession, and concludes that it was with spoken and willingness confessed. This does not mean that Isabel was tortured by modern day standards, but likely escaped the horrors of judicial torture or illegal physical torture using a torture device. It seems probable that she was subjected to the horrors of sleep deprivation. She may have endured the indignity of facing a witch pricker, one which was known to be active in Moray at the time, who went by the name of John Dixon. It turned out that Mr. Dixon was really a woman named Christian Cadell who was deported to Barbados in 1663 for her fraudulent behavior. So I'm assuming that's one of those people that like, and we talked about the reckoning earlier, that's like goes around to get mm -hmm. confessions. Right. It seems alien to the modern mind that anyone would stand up in court and confess to entering a pact with the devil or to having performed a ritual or charm, which caused the death of a child, knowing that it would be signing their death warrant. Yet many did. 
There is a little doubt that many witchcraft subjects were coerced into making a full confession. However, there were many different forms of torture. There was judicial torture, the application of physical coercion as part of the legal process in order to extract a confession. Like this included the use of thumb screws and the iron boots. Permission had to be granted for the council to use this form of torture. And most witchcraft cases originated in the church courts. Church courts were never legally allowed to use direct torture to obtain a confession. However, there is evidence that torture devices were used illegally. Searches for a witch mark or witch pricking. So this was considered to be legal. And we talked about that earlier where they would just basically strip them naked and search them from head to toe. Sleep deprivation. Harsh jail conditions, lack of food and warmth, beating, mob violence, and the threat of a cruel execution. And worn down by the pressures of interrogation and hoping for leniency, the poor woman, in this case Isabel, likely to have told them what they wanted to hear. Which is not surprising. Part of Isabel's confessions are so unique, vivid, and personalized that they could have only come from Isabel herself, while some of her confession is rich in folkloric detail. For example, her descriptions are dominated by maleficum or the use of malicious magic following many of the standard rituals found in the witch trials. She attempted to destroy her neighbor's crops by taking a child's body from the grave and using it as part of an incantation. However, her account of spoiling crops using a frog plow so that afterwards only thistles and briars would grow is unique. Like many other witches, Isabel claimed to have performed image magic where she used effigies of the Laird of Park's male offspring to cause them death or suffering. Where she differed from other trials is the extensive detail of how she kneaded the clay for the figure, very hard like rye meal, and then gave it all the marks and parts of a child, such as head, eyes, nose, hands, foot, mouth, and little lips, and that the hands of it folded down by its side like a scone or sucking pig. The effigies were then burnt as a chant was recited. Much of what Isabel says with regard to demonology is fairly stereotypical as well. Her claim to have attended the witch's Sabbath is conventional, but less conventional is her claim that while the members of her coven were waited on by spirits clothed in yellow and grass green who had peculiar names like Pickle Nearest the Wind, Thomas the Fairy, and Over the Dyke with it. During her first confession, she gave an account of her first encounter with the devil. She arranged to meet him in the Kirk of Aldern at night, naming some others who were in attendance, including Janet Breadhead. <laughs> And Margaret Brody. She said that she renounced her baptism and was rebaptized by the devil, who promptly renamed her Janet. Where she differs from the confession of others in detailing how the devil put his mark on her shoulder and then sucked her blood. Having admitted to entering into a pact with the devil, she then disclosed that she had carnal relations with him, kissed his behind, and that she met with him in groups as well as on her own. This is standard fair and witch trial. Where she differs is in the salacious details of her encounters with the devil, whom she described as being a very cold, black rock man. Allegedly, he had forked and cloven feet, which he sometimes covered with boots or shoes. So basically, the, in the aftermath of this, there were six weeks of inc incarceration interrogation, and the panel of interrogators felt that they had secured enough evidence to secure a conviction against her. And... They did. There is no record of Isabel being executed, although this is not unusual. In 90% of Scottish witch trials, the outcome is unknown as the records no longer exist. It seems likely that Isabel and Janet would have been found guilty at a local trial held in mid-July. Following the verdict, they would have been transported by cart to the gallows on the outskirts of the city where they would have been strangled and burnt. So. Damn. 
Yeah. During the course of her confession, Isabel implicated another 12 people as witches, the members of her coven. Which, you know, if you're going to go down, just go down by yourself, man. Right. I wonder if, you know, talking about, like, her core, like, talking about her confession and it being, like, different and her, like, giving weird details that obviously she made up. Did she think they were, she was, like, they were going to be lenient since she was giving so much detail? Or was she just having fun with them at that point? Right. Like, I'm going to die anyways, so I'm just going to tell them all about my sex with the devil. (laughs) You know? That'd be me, man. Yeah, I guess. Like, what else are you going to do? You might as well have an imagination. Well, like this at the beginning, she was really imaginative, so. Mm Mm-hmm. Murga Bean. Murga Bean stirred the pot, many believe both literally and figuratively. A well-to-do German heiress in the 17th century, Murga was on her third husband when her fate was sealed. Despite it being a relatively peaceful period in history, poor Murga happened to live in Fulda, Germany, a place far removed from stability. Having returned to power after long exile, staunch Catholic reformer Prince Abbot Balthazar von Dernbeck ordered a massive witch hunt in the area between 1602 and 1605 to purge all liberal, ungodly activities. So me. I would have been (laughs) out. Purged. Gone. (laughs) Of the over 200 people who were accused of and executed for being witches in Fulda, Murga was considered to be the most famous. The circumstances that led to her death were ill-timed. She had just returned to the city after arguing with one of her husband's employers, and she found herself pregnant. What made the latter odd was that she had been married to her third husband for 14 years, and they had never before conceived. Naturally, the townspeople believed the only way she could have gotten pregnant was through her having sex with the devil. But come on. She just had an argument with her boss. People are so unimaginative or too imaginative. Yeah, it's like, sure, the devil. Okay, She probably cheated on her husband. Calm down. That or like, maybe it finally happened or maybe she didn't want to have a kid. Who knows? Exactly. Along with that lascivious supernatural act, Murgo was forced to admit to having killed her second husband and children, one of the children of her current husband's employers, and that she had attacked had attended a Black Sabbath. She was burned at the stake in the fall of 1603. A Black Sabbath. I wonder yeah. why she said she killed people. I don't know. Because it gets to that point, because you're tortured, because you don't. I'm like, know. yeah, I fucking killed him. What? What are you going to do? You're already going to kill me. Fuck right. it. I killed those people. <laughs> For sure did. I enjoyed it too. Hell yeah. <laughs> this is La Voisine, a fortune teller, abortionist, sorceress, and poisoner. Catherine Monvoisine was born in or around 1640 and was burned at the stake in 1680. Didn't get to live very long. (laughs) I guess that's pretty normal life. Well, I don't know. Hers is an extraordinary story and illustrates how deeply people believed in witchcraft during the 17th century. Her nickname was La Voisine, came from her married name, Monvoisine. Had her life as a midwife of a Parisian jeweler and silk merchant gone to plan, it would have completely been unremarkable. But when her husband's business was ruined, she set up a midwife business and a fortune teller business. I feel like maybe if people are hunting witches, you don't set up a fortune telling business. I know that they're, right. they're, they were a little different, but I feel like that's just like a gateway for someone to be like, 
I feel like accusing someone of witchcraft. The fortune teller's a little sketchy, right? Like, right. we think fortune telling is weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's probably just a rich woman who didn't understand the problems in the world. And she that wanted to stay rich. Right. And so she did what was easy. Or so she thought. She was so successful that she was able to support the entire family, her husband, mother, and three children. And there's where she fucked up here. She was the breadwinner. Yeah. I'm not saying that's what did it. However, people don't like that. That puts you in the crosshairs. Exactly. She also was. You have a penis? Right. Mm -mm. She also was carrying out abortions, which were illegal at the time. And as her clients came to depend on her help and advice, she could not resist selling magical objects and mixing love potions. (sighs) Yeah. It was a hugely successful business. By 1660, her clientele included the richest and most powerful aristocrats in the land, which I guarantee you, when she was put up for witchcraft, they were like, who? Yeah. I don't know who that is. Yeah. Who the fuck is that? She was rich. She was famous. She had multiple lovers, including an executioner who probably executed her. He was like, I don't know that woman. (laughs) An alchemist, an architect, a magician, and a number of counts and viscounts. She had a house, like several houses in these, you know, beautiful cities where she had her consulting room and gave evening garden parties with live music. She dabbled in science. Also a mistake. You're a woman. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. And alchemy and experimented with poisons. She fucked up. At ev- I'm not saying sh- that she shouldn't have been able to do this stuff. I'm just she saying. She seems very naive for the time. She seems like she was ahead of her time. Yes. Which witchcraft can't do that she was not the only famous fortune teller in paris at that time her rival ran a similar marie boisset boisset ran a similar business for much of the same clients both women were making a living from the vicious competition for influence at the court of sun king louis some roman numerals i don't know Uh, that's a 10 15 i think it's 15 Royal favor could not only lift a person's status, but could make them and their entire family rich for generations. Falling out of favor could result in banishment and life imprisonment or death. So they pissed off the king. Good fucking job. (laughs) Pissing off the Pope. Like, don't do that. Especially I don't hear a good thing about the Louis, you know? Mm. Yeah. Royal favor could... Oh, I already read that. Skip that. As a result, advising... Cordiers. How best to curry favor was a lucrative trade, and she spent a vast amount of money on clothes and other props to ensure that people believed they were getting their money's worth. In time, her daughter Marguerite became her assistant. Demand intensified. People were no longer satisfied with potions brewed from toad bones, mole's teeth, iron filings, and human blood. They wanted a oh, this is sad. They wanted a black mass during which they could ask Satan to answer their prayers. So this poor woman, foreshadowing alert, just tried to keep up with demand. I guarantee you, none of these motherfuckers burned for it. Who were asking for the black mass magic? Mm-hmm. Some rituals reportedly involving sacrificing a human baby. Others required only the use of human baby's blood. No big deal. Just take some blood from the baby. (laughs) She began employing others to help, even calling on priests to officiate for a price. Aphrodisiacs and poisons were all a part of the service, and 
Lavoisine, an expert at the new science of killing by poison, built up a network of apothecaries to supply the various mixtures required. Her most illustrious client was Madame de Mons. Oh, God, it's French. It's so French. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but it was the king's official mistress. Oh, my God. Brilliant, beautiful, and ambitious. Having a, She was, I mean, yeah, she was determined not to be supplanted by anyone else in turn in the rival-strewn French court. So this bitch was, like, on a mission. She was like, I'm the mistress. I'm going to be the best, right? Her scheming was complicated by the fact that she was almost permanently pre- <laughs> she was almost permanently pregnant. She had seven children as a result of her affair with the king. To add to the two she had born by her husband. God damn, you go girl. The fact that she didn't hey. die, <laughs> right? You know, like not. A- hey, there's some women that are just built to go. She didn't die once. Didn't die once. <laughs> like she died. <laughs> she would die multiple times. I mean, all those pregnancies didn't kill her. Come on. Yeah. To maintain the king's affections and hold off the competition, she turned to sorcery, black masses, and love potions, all supplied by our girl. Louis was never a faithful lover, taking numerous women to bed. That bit, that bitch never burned. God. <laughs> Even during the periods when he had an official mistress. Okay. I'm sorry. I keep stopping. He has an. He has his wife. He has an official mistress and then a bunch of unofficial side hoes. But nice. the fact that he has an official mistress, like you're the official side hoe. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> and over the course of their relationship, the madame, who is the mistress, slipped potions into his food. Which I bet she ain't going to get blamed for it. In 1677, however, so the story goes, the madame found out that the king had started an affair with Angelique de Fontois. I said that wrong. And was so furious that she planned to poison them both. She consulted our girl, who eventually agreed to hand the king a poisoned paper petition in person. Okay, you're fucking with the king, girl. Girly. Right. Girlfriend. Yeah. The plan failed and another was hatched. But before it could be put into action, another well-known fortune teller was arrested for poisoning. It was the start of a major scandal known as La Affaire des Poisons, which rocked Paris from 1677 to 1682. The subsequent investigation uncovered a network of fortune tellers, sorcerers, and poisoners across the capital. A number of prominent aristocrats were also rounded up and sentenced for witchcraft. Oh, good, they were. And poisoning. In all, 36 people were executed and many more were imprisoned for life. In January 1679, Lafoisine's chief competitor... Marie was arrested. It was inevitable she would betray her rival. And two months later, our girl Catherine was also detained. By the end of the year, the whole network was in jail. La Voisine was by this time an alcoholic. There was no need for torture. She talked about her career, admitted selling poison and magical services, named some of her lesser known clients. She was like, just give me the wine. I'll tell you whatever you want to (laughs) know. In February of 1680, she was put on trial and two days later burned alive. Arrested sometime later, her daughter Marguerite confessed everything, including her mother's list of clients, the attempt on the king's life, and her connection to like, her rival, along with a huge number of other high-ranking courtiers. The story was corroborated by others in the network, and the king was informed. The scandal reached right to the throne. 
Louis closed the investigation, suppressed the gossip, sealed the witness statements, ordered the destruction of the mini dog, the documents, and the investigation, and had the remaining accused imprisoned under a letter de cachet, which meant they virtually disappeared. They no longer had any legal existence. They were split up and imprisoned in various strongholds around the country. It is not known when Marguerite or any of the others died, because they were fucking erased. Gone. God damn. Poof. <laughs> the reign of mistress-in-chief was over. Our madame, our head side bitch, she gone. Although the king still spent the night with her from time to time, she got to live even though she was the one that was doing the poisoning and he knew that. He was like, ah, oh, you still a good lay though. Like, mm. well, I mean, seven kids, like she has to be good. Fertile myrtle, baby. What else are we good <laughs> for, right? Right. I would be the worst. Ain't no babies coming for me. Mm-mm. <laughs> By 1681, she had been replaced by Marquis de Maintenon, the tight-laced governess to the king's legitimate children. Ooh, having an affair with the governess. And that was the end of the Affaire des Poisons. Catherine has been described as a woman of her time. Her husband was useless. He tried all sorts of professions, but was bad at all of them. So she started a fortune telling and turned out to have a better head for business. She made a fortune and acted as a kind of agent, putting clients in touch with people who would do almost anything but for a price. He pointed out that before the Enlightenment, people were very superstitious. They believed in God, and of course, so much of religion is based on miracles and magic that they were predisposed to believe in it. It was popularly believed that base metal could be turned into gold, that a talisman would protect you from harm during a battle, witches could cast spells, that love potions existed, that a person could be cursed. All of this was so ingrained that offers of this sort were commonly attached to other illegal services, such as abortion and murder. Catherine, for example, used to baptize newborns before killing them as sacrifices. It was said that her oh, damn. <laughs> it was said that her garden contained the remains of up to twenty five hundred fetuses and newborn babies. Now, you know, who knows if that's true, but you know. Right. Science had not yet started to explain the mysteries of life and death, and people still believed in mollifying the capricious humors of the devil with black magic, sacrifices, and any number of other groom rituals. Even today, people still believe in fortune tellers, paying them good money to find out what life has in stores. I'm not suggesting they are, this is a historian, I'm not suggesting they are murderers like Catherine, just pointing out that people are still attracted to the idea of someone with special powers being able to somehow see the future and give you an advantage. And look at how many people believe in horoscopes and the rest of it. The difference is that today it is less connected to religion. I mean, I would argue it's just a different type of like religion or spirituality Mm -hmm. you know yeah but that one's definitely the most interesting in my opinion because like she was just trying to she she just boss babed too close to the sun you know what i mean (laughs) yeah she was like okay okay you're we're okay we're gonna poison the king okay well like that's gonna cost you a lot of money but like i'll do it you know (laughs) too close to the sun babes yep that sucks that was really interesting though i like right yeah all right, the last one. This is Malin Matsdotter. What goes around comes around. Malin Matsdotter was a Swedish widow of Finnish descent who was accused by her own daughters of being a witch. But in this case, there was no sorcery involved. Instead, the daughter's charge was that she abducted their children and took them to a satanic Sabbath. Malin, along with Anna Simon's daughter, Hack, were the last victims executed for being witches during the Great Swedish Witch Hunt of 1668-76, to often referred to as the Great Noise. What makes Malin Mottstadter unique is that she's considered the only witch in Swedish history to have been burned alive. 
Normally, witches were decapitated or hanged to death before their bodies were burned at the stake, which was Anna, Simon's daughter's and daughter Hack's fate. But it appears Malin's refusal to admit her guilt made the authorities less gracious in their sentencing. Unlike her fellow deathmate, Anna, who humbly asked for forgiveness, although never really admitting to being a witch, Malin firmly maintained her innocence, and her goings out made history. In the end, she refused to shake hands with her daughters, as one of them called out for her to repent. Malin gave her daughter into the hands of the devil and cursed her for eternity. As the flames covered her body, she reportedly did not scream, nor did she appear to be in pain. For the locals, it was further proof she was a witch. Nonetheless, shortly after her death, one of her daughters was convicted of perjury, and she too was forced to walk through death's door. I'm not saying that I would be able to burn without showing any signs of pain. I'm just saying that's what I would want to do. Yeah. I mean, they tend to say that, like, the smoke will take you. So maybe that was it. Maybe she just passed out from smoke inhalation. I would just want to be as petty as possible. Mostly. (laughs) Right. You know? Like, if you think I'm a witch, I'm going to be, like, as witchy as possible. Right. I would say one of those things that goes down in the folklore books about cursing the entire town for eternity, you know? Exactly. <laughs> like exactly. in Fear Street, you know? Yes. Yeah. I love that. Like all of you that are watching, cursed forever. <laughs> yes. Satan's going to take your babies. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. But, you know. Well, thank you guys for hanging out with us for us discussing this rather unfortunate topic of witches. Witches, current witches, not unfortunate. These people that probably weren't witches, unfortunate. Now, the one poisoning the king, eh, he probably deserved it. But, you know, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't have been poisoning the king. Right. You know. But, boss bitch, though. For real. Right? You can find us on all of our social medias. Everything is the Extra Sisters podcast, except for Twitter, which is at the Extra Sisters. And you can follow us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the Extra Sisters podcast. Until next time, stay creepy. Stay creepy.